everybody to our story. I'm glad that you've joined us for yet another episode. I am again excited about this week. Joining me this week are Phil Schrader and uh, Tamron Freund. Tamron, we're glad to have you. There's a reason that you are here this week, and it is because this Sunday is Children's Sabbath Sunday, and that means that that worship is going to be a little bit different. We've got a little bit different focus for uh, for a few things going on this Sunday that we're really excited about. So I'm glad that you're here to share a little bit more about that. But before we get into kind of the logistics and, and what that might practically look like this week, I want to hear a little bit more about what children, what's the idea behind Children's Sabbath and how long has this been going on? Remember, Phil and I are, are still new to the church. We're still kind of figuring out up from down. And uh, that may be true for some of the folks listening too. So uh, tell us a little bit about the history of Children's Sabbath. It's a day of rest for children. <laughs> so all of the children get to sleep in. Yeah. And opposite. O- only, oh, it's opposite day too? Unfortunately, it's an opposite of the day of rest for children. It oh. is actually the day we put them to work finally. Um, we have been calling it the children's takeover of worship. Oh, um, okay. So instead of... It doesn't have quite the same ring to it, though. It doesn't, which is why we keep posting children's Sabbath. Okay. But if you're trying to figure it out, it's children takeover worship. You've seen an Instagram takeover. Well, our kids are going to step up and take some of the roles in worship We drew the line at delivering the message, but they get to do things like greet, and they get to do the um, Apostles' Creed for us, and they will say, they will read the scripture this week. So it's just a time that the kids who know so much in the congregation get to step up and shine and show how they're becoming leaders in the church in a role that just doesn't always make sense to have them there. Yeah, I think this is so cool. I want to hear you talk a little bit more, Tamron, about why this is important. So, you know, you think about the number of Sundays we have in a year is only 52. And uh, and we're we're giving over an entire Sunday to children's leadership and worship. And um, I want to hear you share a little bit more about why is that so important? What do you think the value is, not only for the the kids, but also for the church? Well, I think... Okay, so there's a lot of value to the kids, but I think this Sunday is particularly a blessing to the church because you get to see the kids in worship. Usually they are pretty quiet. You get the odd week. But um, if you've been to our outdoor worships, you'll see them reading or coloring. They're, They're kind of passively listening. But on Children's Sabbath, they get to step up and they get to show all of the things that they actually know. You'd be surprised to see what these kids can um, infer from a piece of text. I get the uh, unique position of talking to them through devotionals and getting to do Sunday school. Mm -hmm. And um, all the way down to our kindergartners, if you ask them something about God, they can tell you. And when they come up and they read the scripture and you hear their voice saying it, you can start to understand that they really get it, right? It's not just words on a page to them. You can hear that they have the tone for it. They understand it. And that's a chance for our church to celebrate what we invest in, right? We spend time and money and energy from the top to the bottom of the church all year long um, on these kids. And you get to see them celebrate those learnings up there by welcoming you with a welcoming face, being that um, that first smile of Jesus when you come in, or saying the words of the scripture, or leading us in the Apostles' Creed, which is our statement of faith. That's really big to get to celebrate with them. Um, so that's what the church gets out of it. Uh, And it's why I get so excited about it. But the flip side is the kids get a chance to remember that they are not passive members of this congregation. Um, Mm. We spend a lot of time trying to teach them that 
the people they see are part of their family. It's a broader group. And when they get to join into worship, they really get to see that they are fully capable of teaching others about God, of teaching others the love of Jesus, um, beyond waiting for high school graduation to do something formal. Um, So it's a a time every year we remind them that they are already members of this congregation and they are already leaders in this church, which is really fun to see as well. Wow. I mean, that's... That's a pretty, that's pretty impressive, Tamron. You know, I think one of the reasons that I wanted you to speak to that is sometimes we come to an event like Children's Sabbath and we think, oh, isn't that cute? And that's, that's about all the thought that we put into it. But I think the opportunity there is so much richer than, oh, it's nice for the children to be up front. The opportunity, not only for the church, but for the kids, uh, is such a, uh, such an important piece of their development. One of the things I'm curious about, Phil, is whether as a child, did you ever do something like this? Were you ever part of leading worship as a child? Oh, certainly. Uh, you grow up in smaller churches and you get more opportunities to do this. Uh-huh. And when you get more opportunities to do this, I think the service that they would trust us with as youth was Easter Sunrise. Yeah. So as youth, they're like, you guys can get up that early. We'll give you Easter sunrise. But occasionally we get to read scripture. And you can see the pattern in some of our, uh, at least small membership churches, where people grow in their public speaking ability. Uh, they get over their fear of speaking in front of uh, groups and things like that. And they're ready to present at school and things in new ways because of the preparation they experienced in church. So I'm curious if when when you had those opportunities as a kid, was there anything that you took away from that, you personally? Was that a formative experience for you as a child, or was that kind of uh, just just another piece and maybe not quite as big of a deal? Not as big a deal for me as a preacher's kid uh, because there was no uh, uh, like otherness or allure to it. Uh, you know, I spent my growing up years... Uh, you know, sitting in, running through, uh, the sanctuary was a second home. So it w- did not have the same sort of formative as it might have for, for someone else. How about you? Yeah, I, I remember distinctly a few experiences as a kid participating in something like this, both when I was in elementary school and also when I was in junior high and high school. Uh, when I, I, The first sermon that I ever delivered was, I think I was maybe in eighth grade or something like that. It was horrendous. Thank God they didn't record it. Um, because people's lives were changed um, for the worse. But uh, as a child, as a young child, not only participating in choir, but I can remember being chosen to read scripture and that feeling like such a, such a big thing. That, that was not a, a, a normal thing. My, my parents, neither of my parents were pastors growing up. And so to read scripture up at the lectern, we had a lectern and I had to get a stool so you could you know, see over the top of it and all this. But it felt like such a big deal, and it always stuck with me that that I was able to do that. Uh, and I, I couldn't tell you what the passage was. I couldn't tell you what impact it had on worship that day. But for me, it was uh, a moment of worth and value in a unique way. Tamron, how about you? As you were growing up, any experiences like this? I didn't. I didn't grow up in church. So, so what so. does it mean for you then as not only... Um, the children's director, but also as a parent of a young child, 
What does it mean for you on the flip side to give that kind of opportunity to kids? To me, it's really exciting because as an adult, I had to get comfortable talking about religion because it wasn't something that I had grown up around um, and been in a church experience. So I had to get into that role. So to know that my kids are always going to be comfortable, that they always have a resource to go to and a group to go to, and they won't have to go through that investigation, that finding phase and getting through those hurdles of being uncomfortable talking about religion um, and talking about their beliefs um, is something that I really look forward to. It's important. So that's why you do see them running up and down the sanctuary. <laughs> if you see my kids at church, they think they belong here. And that's that makes my heart very, very happy. Uh, very cool. Well, I, I want to have you back at some point to tell the story of how you went from not growing up in church to now being a children's director, because I know that's a good story. <laughs> but for today, uh, we are um, we are gonna continue on and explore a little bit in Philippians chapter three. So this is the third week in the series, uh, Joyful Embrace, and we've looked at Philippians one. We've taken a look at Philippians two now, and we're gonna dive into the first uh, fourteen verses or so. Of, uh, of Philippians chapter 3. Phil, I wonder if, if you would set this up for us a little bit. Well, we spent the first week in the first chapter of Philippians uh, talking about the joyful embrace, that this is uh, a warm hug that Paul sends to the, the people of Philippians, and that's how everything starts out. It's this gracious, wonderful thanksgiving for people. And then uh, the next week we talked about what is the main ingredient that Paul thinks the Christian church should have? And he says all these things, all the, all the ingredients for being the right kind of church are there for the people at Philippi. They have encouragement of one another. They have compassion for one another. They have a, a sense of community and they have a sense of supportive love. And when all those things are mixed together, and he uses the term in the second chapter three times, being of the same mind, uh, having the same mind, taking on the mind of Christ, it is asking people to think in a way that is not their way of thinking, but taking on the mind of Christ. And I think if we did that more often, I wonder how our days would go and I wonder how uh, our life in, in the world beyond us would go. And so now we have this conversation where Paul uh, begins by reminding you who he is. It's almost a, a warning of sorts is the way this the beginning of this feels. As in, be careful here. That's kind of the, I don't know if that's the tone that you hear, but the tone that I hear in the these opening verses of chapter 3 is almost a, uh, be careful. Yeah, I graduated magna cum laude from seminary school, uh -huh. from rabbinical school. Uh -huh. you, you watch it. I, I, yeah, I studied under the best of the best. I am the best of the best. So just be careful that you don't take on that impression, right? What he's saying is don't take on that perspective. And the way that he warns us about this is by essentially listing his resume. Yes. And I love it. I, I mean, I, I love a good resume, right? And Paul offers the best kind of resume, really, that you that you can offer, Um Right, he talks about, and this is in verse four and five, really in verse five, um, 
Well, let me go back to verse four. If you haven't read this, he says, "If anyone has, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, in other words, confident in what I have I more. Can do, I have more. I've got more. I'm better. I'm better. Anything than you. you can do, I can do better. Although I don't imagine he's saying it quite as well. He he says, "I've got more more reason to be confident." He says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Why is that important? Jewish child circumcised on the eighth day. Yeah, he's a member of the of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, and I love this phrase, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. He's essentially saying, what, I, I'm the most Jewish guy that I could that you could possibly be. I'm more Jewish than you, which means I'm more a child of God than anybody else here. I'm an insider. Oh, that's a, good, that's a better way to put that. I like that. I'm an insider. So, But he doesn't stop there, right? No, by no means. But Paul always says, by no means. Oh, that's one of my favorite phrases. Yeah. Uh, he says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I mean, that's a, that's a heck of a, of a trilogy. I mean, if you were to describe that now, it would be like, I went to the best school. I, have, I live in the best neighborhood, the coolest part of Dunwoody. Ooh. My parents have great jobs, and they've taught me well. It's all the things you could list now that are the important things, the best toys, the best sports programs, right? All of those things, Paul's already got them. I like that, Tamron. He, he's essentially saying, nobody has more than me. So when you, and, and I, like, I like thinking about it in modern terms. The ancient terms, I think, are a little bit unfamiliar for us. You did a great job translating that to the modern. When you go back to the, the ancient context, the context in which Paul was writing, he's, when he says that he's a Pharisee, what he's saying is he knows the law better than any of us. When he says that, uh, that he's a persecutor of the church, he's saying nobody was more passionate. This is a statement of passion for Paul, that he was passionate about maintaining Jewish belief. Uh, it's easy to throw stones at that, but he, what he's saying is nobody was more excited and energized than I was to be uh, a faithful Jewish young man. And then he says, you know, I sort of righteousness on the law. Nobody, nobody did it, but not only did I know the law, but I did the law. And that's such a bold statement. I mean, that's, I think this is one of those passages that are uh, that give voice to, to why people view Paul as arrogant and obnoxious sometimes, it, which is kind of ironic, though, right? It reminds me of a conversation with a rabbi after finishing the first half of Disciple 1. So he finished the Old Testament, and I always try to bring a rabbi in to help answer people's questions that I hadn't been able to fully answer during those 17 weeks of discovery. And so someone asked her, they said... Uh, why don't you convert more people to Judaism? And she said, well, it's not that we don't want people to be Jewish, to, to, to follow in, in, the, in the paths uh, that we follow. But if you convert to Judaism, you are now putting yourself under the law. Right now, as a righteous Gentile, you can be included in the world to come by being a righteous Gentile. But if you choose to convert then you have to live under the law and seek to be blameless like Paul. Yikes. I'm going to take a hard pass on that. I mean, that's a high standard. That's a high bar. So all of this is the setup, right? Paul is offering us his best resume. Um, and, and he says, 
If you want to talk about why I have reason to boast in, in who I am, that's why. But there's a, there's a big transition in verse 7. Yet. Yet. Whatever gains I had, I've come to regard all that as loss because of Jesus. What do you make of this? Where, where do you think Paul is headed? Why brag about himself and then say, but none of that matters? It's like he's saying, all of those are just stumbling, stepping stumbling stones, really. More than more than resume items. They they had clouded his vision. I mean, I can't think about Paul without thinking about his conversion story. Um, and so all of these things kind of had him distracted from Christ. Yeah. Yeah. He, and it goes back to uh, the Christ hymn in chapter 2. Uh, because the Christ hymn starts with, Jesus, name above all names, you know, co-equal with the Father, and then choosing to empty himself, uh, as Wesley says, choosing to empty himself of all but love. And so choosing to empty himself, and there's this this same uh, sense of moving from that place of prominence to that place of humility. Oh, so you th- you kind of see this as Paul following Jesus and emptying himself of his resume? I think there's some of that. Oh, that's interesting. I've never thought about that. It's kind of a mirrored effect, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's I think what Paul is trying to get us to do in his writing about who Christ is is to get us to follow that pattern of self-emptying and then trusting God for the glorifying as opposed to trusting ourselves and our resume for the glorifying. Yeah, I think that that's really Important, Phil. I like the way that you've set that up with uh, with Philippians two, with that Christ hymn that you were talking about. What he goes on to say is that he regards all that as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Right, the the value, and let's just flip that statement around. The value of knowing Christ is so great that none of the other stuff really matters. Right, again, we have Paul saying that the center of our universe and the center of our individual lives has little to do with what we have done. It has everything to do with who Jesus is. I mean, it's a total reorientation of, of our lives, and I think that's where Paul is pointing. I'd never thought about Paul providing the example of reorientation Right, the, the, following the example of Jesus, I, I think that's isn't really that, interesting. Isn't that what he calls though? I mean, he calls for the reorientation of uh, each of us, not to put ourselves at the head of the line, not to put ourselves first. Yeah. And so, I think t- telling the story about what Jesus does shrinks all of his resume uh, and puts it at the proper size. Yeah, he's saying if anybody should be first in line, it's me. But you know where I am? He says, I'm last in line. I've been first in line, he yeah. says. Yeah. And and isn't that what you deal with with kids all the time? It is. They Everybody enjoys being that front line leader. They want to be the most important to walk through the door first. Huh? And how do you get to do that these days? I mean, has it changed? I mean, do you have to call it? Do you just fight for it? What's the... It looks like over in the kindergarten, they're still assigning somebody a turn, and then somebody else gets to be that second person who ends up being the door holder, who eventually ends up at the back of the line anyway. And that's still an honored position, at least. First to be last, of course. There you go. 
Better a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Perfect. <laughs> uh, so, Tamron, I'm curious about this passage. As you look at this passage through the lens of our children, what is it that you hear out of this that you think most adults might not pay attention to, but that our kids would pick up on and might be able to teach us? I think kids are better at placing themselves in a more righteous position sometimes than we are, uh, where where they see that they have kind of a place in the world and they're not so worried about being important. Like they enjoy being line leader. But if you ask them uh, whether they need to be in charge, they kind of just move in this herd. If you watch them out on the playground, one person comes up with an idea and they play with that as long as they play with that and another person does. And they're okay transitioning this idea of, who's leading and who's in charge of the game, with some exceptions. You'll see the exceptions. (laughs) But they do this kind of passing along of the ideas so well because none of them is fighting to be the most important all the time. They kind of take turns being in that important role um, better than adults do, you know. Interesting. I almost want to say something about as we grow up, our brokenness becomes more apparent. There, there's an innocence in children that, that leads to, in a sense, a greater humanity, right? There, we're almost more human when we're children. And I wonder if we might be able to say that being more human means that we're not as concerned about what our resumes are. We're not as concerned about what we're producing or who's leading or who's in charge. What we're more concerned about is just being together. And it goes to some of the the things that we do to try and protect ourselves that we're talking about on Wednesday nights in Anatomy of Peace. People create a better than box where they can define themselves as better than so they know who to look down on. Or they have a likes to be seen box that uh, is the way that they want to portray themselves. And kids just don't have that kind of pretense. They don't. Um, It's funny, if you ask kids about God... They're going to give you a very simple answer, but it's usually more accurate than the long-winded things that we come up with as adults. And that's, I think, the easiest way to see that they have not created this fancy system for themselves. They're just rolling with real life. Oh, my oldest uh, came up one day and uh, he asked my brother, explain television to me. And my brother, who is quite erudite um, and has a scientific worldview that uh, he can explain anything. So he begins this long explanation and you can see Daniel just kind of zoning out as my brother keeps explaining more and more. And finally, um, my wife jumps in and says, Daniel, it's magic. And he goes, oh, and he leaves. That's all he wants. Perfect. Maybe maybe we ought to revisit who's preaching on uh, on Children's Sabbath. Maybe the kids <laughs> should preach, and uh, we'll see if they can come up with something better than we could. Uh, I wouldn't doubt it. I, I think this is a, a great passage. It's a it's a dense passage, as most of Paul is, and it's one that really you have to read a few times to catch the sense of what Paul is saying and, and where Paul is leading with this. But it, it's one that is worth... I would think a few a few readings before Sunday. Phil, as you think about this passage as it relates to worship, and as you think about um, preparing our hearts and our minds for worship, is there a point of reflection that you would encourage for us 
in advance of Sunday? I think that there is a sense of Christ sharing in our pain and in our suffering. And we've talked about that a little bit over the last couple of weeks, uh, that the one who comes and shares in our sufferings is able to uh, communicate to us in a way that one who does not share in our sufferings. So I think that the idea that, that Christ comes alongside us in our pain, in our brokenness, in our sufferings, uh, just as uh, Tambrin and her crew come alongside children in whether their joy or their suffering, it's that it's that not being over, but coming alongside. Uh, do you remember that game you played when you were kids called Sardines? Did you ever play that? We did. And Sardines is, is like the opposite of hide-and-seek. In Sardines, one kid goes to hide, and then the next person goes and gets in there with them until everybody is in that place. And it reminds me of, I think, what God is doing in Christ is finding us wherever we've hidden and coming in alongside us and joining us in our struggle. Yeah, I love that. And I think that is that's part of the reorientation, right? That in our pain and suffering and likewise in our joys, that the thing we're looking at is not inside of ourselves, right? The thing that we are focused on is not us. It's the one who makes the journey with us. So I, I love that. I'm really excited about worship this Sunday. I'm excited about Children's Sabbath. I'm excited the kids are going to be leading us. I'm, I'm confident that I'm going to learn something, and I know you will too, that I'm going to learn something because of something that one of our kids says. And what a, what a gift that is for our church uh, to have that opportunity. Phil, we, we've, we've had some changes in our worship times. I wonder if you could just remind us real quick what's going on if you're able to join us in person when can you come? When can you be with us on campus? Still have 8.45 a.m. outside on the parking lot, but we've added 11.22 a.m. And then our evening service moved last week to 5 p.m. Uh, it started to get dark earlier, so we moved to 5 p.m. And we'll stay with 5 p.m. with the intent of moving inside on November the 1st for our first evening worship service of November. It will be inside at five o'clock. We'll be masked. We'll be following uh, rules for uh, social distancing. Uh, there will be assigned seats so that you know what to expect and uh, you know that you're coming into a safe environment, even though the message might be challenging. <laughs> is, that's a lot to be excited about, Phil. So we've got uh, 8.45 a.m., 11.22 a.m., and 5 p.m., and uh, the possibility of coming back on, in person on November 1st. Did I get all that right? That's correct. So I know that we're going to send out a lot of information. If we do, in fact, come back to indoor worship on the 1st, we're going to send out a lot of information about how we're doing this safely and what our protocols are, protocols are so that everybody's clear on, uh, on what we're trying to accomplish and, and where we're going. So watch out for uh, news on our website. Watch out for news on Facebook and in your email. And we will make sure that everybody has what they need in order to enjoy uh, a safe indoor experience when that opportunity comes. Friends, thanks for joining us. Tamron, great to have you. Phil, great to have you. It's always fun to explore scripture together. And uh, I hope that uh, all of you who are listening who have uh, enjoyed the time as well. We'll see you all next week.
Thanks for listening to the Our Story podcast from Dunwoody UMC. Visit us online at dunwoodyumc.org and join us for online worship every Sunday morning. This Sunday, October 18th, we'll also have outdoor worship at 8.45 and 11.22 a.m. in the parking lot and at 5 p.m. on the ball field. We hope you'll join us and add your story to ours.